The scripture reading for today will be found in John, the 15th chapter, verse 1 through 17. If you'd like to follow along, it's printed on page 6 of your bulletin. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands... You will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands, and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. La lectura de hoy se encuentra en Juan capítulo 15, versículos del 1 al 17. Yo soy la vid verdadera y mi Padre es el labrador. Toda rama que en mí no da fruto, la corta. Pero toda rama que da fruto, la poda para que dé más fruto todavía. Ustedes ya están limpios por la palabra que les he comunicado. Permanezcan en mí y yo permaneceré en ustedes. Así como ninguna rama puede dar fruto por sí misma, sino que tiene que permanecer en la vid, así tampoco ustedes pueden dar fruto si no permanecen en mí. Yo soy la vid y ustedes son las ramas. El que permanece en mí como, ya, como yo en él, dará mucho fruto. Separados de mí no pueden ustedes hacer nada. El que no permanece en mí es desechado y se seca, como las ramas que se recogen, se arrojan al fuego y se queman. Si permanecen en mí y mis palabras permanecen en ustedes, mis palabras permanecerán en ustedes. Pidan lo que quieran y, si, y se les concederá. Mi Padre es glorificado cuando ustedes dan mucho fruto y muestran así que son mis discípulos. Así como el Padre me ha amado a mí, también yo les he amado a ustedes. Permanezcan en mi amor. Si obedecen mis mandamientos, permanecerán en mi amor. Así como yo yo he obedecido los mandamientos de mi Padre y permanezco en su amor. Les he dicho esto para que tengan mi alegría y así su alegría sea completa. Y este es mi mandamiento, que se amen los unos a los otros como yo los he amado. Nadie tiene amor más grande que el dar la vida por sus amigos. Ustedes son mis amigos y hacen lo que yo les mando. Ya no les llamo siervos, porque el siervo no está al tanto de lo que hace su amo. Los he llamado amigos porque todo lo que a mi padre les le oí decir, 
se, se lo he dado a conocer a ustedes. No me escogieron ustedes a mí, sino que yo los escogí a ustedes y los comisioné para que vayan y den fruto, un fruto que perdure. Así el Padre les dará todo lo que le pidan en mi nombre. Este es mi mandamiento, que se amen los unos a los otros. Thank you, Jessica and Oscar. Uh, we have a guest preacher, guest speaker here today, and it is uh, Reverend Chuck Garrett. Chuck is a known brother in our community, um, just in a lot of people's lives, and a lot of us have benefited from uh, just his friendship, service, leadership in a lot of ways. Um, the Adams Morgan Neighborhood Group is actually hosted in his home together with Debbie Garriott, led by the Joneses. Um, and so uh, especially you all that are in that group have been blessed by uh, Chuck, the man that he is in many ways. He also leads um, a ministry called Ministry to State, um, which is our denomination's effort to serve and support people that work in government centers here in Washington, D.C., also state capital as well as international capitals. Uh, so a wonderful, vibrant uh, ministry that Chuck leads and is a part of and that we are blessed uh, to uh, be served by here today. Uh, Chuck bringing his insights uh, from the Word of God, uh, from John. So thanks so much, Chuck, for being here. Why don't you come on up? Thank you. you want to pray for me? Yeah, let's do that. Thank you. All right. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, it is with uh, great applause in our hearts and with gratitude uh, that we uh, receive and welcome this brother, uh, and we welcome him as we welcome you to use him and to bless the preaching of your word that you would make your words, your voice to come alive and to pierce our hearts and to affect us, and to change us, and to challenge us. But what we need is receptivity, a willingness to be affected and changed and challenged and provoked in that sort of way. And uh, So help us to know, uh, help us to hear, help us to respond, help us to believe. Um, soften our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, it's a privilege for me to be here with you, and I should say also that for... Debbie and I, to be part of the church and the community at large is uh, just an honor for us. And we want you to know, those of you who have, I'm going to mess this up, I'm sure. Uh, I'll just pull back a little bit, or maybe I'll pull back. Anyway, uh, but I appreciate so much the, just the support and encouragement that, that Debbie and I receive and uh, knowing that uh, to be under this ministry and to benefit from the fellowship and the encouragement from you all, over the course of the last many years, it's a privilege for us, and especially to, uh, to Duke and Paula, who have become good friends, and we have really appreciated their ministry to us. You may not know this, but uh, I have reached what I will refer to as the 60-40 window. Now, I'm sure many of you don't have a clue in regards to what that means. What does it mean when a person reaches that 60-40 window? But... It has nothing to do with geography or anything of that nature. Some of you are thinking that about the 1040 window maybe, but no. The 6040 window means that you've reached the age of 60, right? And secondly, you are approaching the 40 years of marriage. Now, I realize that that might sound like some kind of 
of uh, unbelievable statistics in regards to can the, I mean, I, I was hoping you would say, oh, can he really be 60 years of age, right? I didn't hear that at all. Did you? I didn't, no. I mean, okay. So, all right. So, I look 60. I, in fact, the truth is when I go to McDonald's, they seem to recognize it as well. And uh, occasionally, you know what I mean? Which, no, you don't know what this means. What it means is when you get to a certain age, they'll give you like a 50 cent cup of coffee. And, uh, and, and the question is when you come up to the counter, do they automatically want to give you that 50 cent cup of coffee? Or do they sort of gingerly say, um, did you know that if you are, well, I think it's the age 55, you can receive a, fr- a, a 50 cent cup of coffee? You know, some a little bit more diplomatic than others. But the point is, is that it is a little bit of a challenge uh, in regards to what this means. Now, the 40 uh, means also that I'm not quite, Debbie and I are not quite to the 40th year anniversary. It will come this January. So I, I think it's proper to say we're, we're in our 40th year, if that makes sense. And uh, we're looking forward to uh, that actual mark, so to speak, within our lives. And I should tell you a little bit about what the beginning was and if you go back, now I know some of you are thinking, 40 years, is that before or after the First World War? And it's, it, is, it is after the Second World War, actually. And we, and in fact, uh, here's, how, here's really what happened. We had known each other for a number of years in high school. And uh, we began to date in my last year of of, of uh, of high school and her first year of college, and it wasn't very far from here. It's about an hour drive from where we sit right now. And after dating Debbie for about maybe ten months or so, I began to to wonder where this relationship was going. And in fact, I became somewhat burdened by the whole issue. I wasn't comfortable for whatever reason in just allowing the relationship to go on and. I think many of our friends were, would have been fine in terms of saying, well, give the thing a couple more years. And, but I, I didn't feel that way. And I, uh, I began to contemplate and pray at the time I was a believer and pray that you know, God would guide me in regards to this relationship. And so I began to wonder whether or not this was the time to contemplate asking her to marry me. Now, uh, what did I have? Well, I didn't have any money. I didn't have a place to live. I had an old car that was my parents' old 64 station wagon, okay? So that wasn't, that wasn't looking terribly promising at the time. Um, I, I had not even started college, much less finished it. And yet I'm contemplating this relationship because I believed we had gotten to a point where it needed to be more defined. It needed to be either a commitment where we were committing to each other and we belong to one another uh, or I saw the relationship if we weren't there maybe then uh, going our separate ways and so I went away on Labor Day of 1972 to a place called Fenwick Island which is just the south part of Delaware and spent the weekend praying and seeking God and then I came back to Baltimore and I went to her door and then I proposed to her and to my surprise she said yes And uh, so that was over, you see, 40 years ago. And I'm fairly convinced now that I belong to her and she belongs to me, that we are committed to each other, right? Now, she could have said anything at the time, but I mean, she could have said, well, I need to think about it. I would like to have a little bit more time. Or she could have just simply said, no, you know, 
But she didn't. So I, I felt greatly privileged. And um, anyway, I won't give you any more details at that point, except to simply say this. I think there are any number of times within a relationship where it needs to be more defined, that it, maybe it seems somewhat fuzzy, and it seems as if it's not really going on a particular track or a particular road, and you begin to wonder what's going on here. And I also tend to think that that's not only true in terms of relationships between one another, whether it be friends or whether it be, in this case, uh, a, a person that you've been dating and you're wondering if they will become your, your wife or, in other cases, your husband. But uh, what about in terms of God? Is it possible that in certain ways that that relationship can become somewhat fuzzy and we begin to wonder, how is it really defined? Well, the passage that you have heard, both in English and in Spanish, is, I think, a help to us in terms of understanding what it means to have a well-defined relationship with God. And what it means, in essence, if you consider the passage, to think about belonging to God as opposed to kind of belonging to God. I think there are, I think if you think if you if you consider the different options in terms of people's relationship with God, you'll see that in some cases it's very casual. Maybe it's it's almost non-existent. Uh, they know about God. They actually would say that they believe in God, but to be committed, no, that's not part of the equation for them. Other people have a what I'll call a quasi commitment to God, where they. You know, they not only believe that he exists, but, but they, they are somewhat interested in pursuing things of God. And maybe they see themselves as a seeker, as someone who is actually thinking about it. And then you have others who would clearly call themselves committed. But if they were to be honest with themselves, if they were to sit down and look at the, the checkbook, so to speak, of their lives, in terms of their activities and their, their, their thought life, their their um, uh, commitment to the church or to other Christians, it's pretty much non-existent. And then you would have those who truly would say that they are committed to the Lord, that they have surrendered to Him in faith and repentance, and that they belong to Him. And as you look at their life, and as, as they look at their lives, as well as, as other people look at their lives, they see this abiding, this commitment. Well, the passage in front of us, I think, helps us understand what that looks like. And Jesus here is making clear to his disciples what it looks like to belong to him. Now, if we go back in terms of the historical setting that we have in this passage in John chapter 15, you may or may not uh, recall that this is what we call the upper room discourse. That means that Jesus is coming to the very end of his earthly ministry. And in doing so, now, he is preparing his disciples for what's going to come. Now, he has been preparing them for the last three years, but for some reason, certain parts of that preparation never really sunk in. They just never understood it. And so he brings them into this upper room, and he washes their feet. It's there that we have the Lord's Supper instituted. Uh, he begins to explain to them again that he is going to suffer many th- in many ways, and he's going to go to the cross and he's going to die. But on the third day, he's going to rise from the dead. And you would think that they understand all these things. To some degree, they seem to get it. If you look at chapter 14 of the same gospel, you'll see there that Jesus says to his disciples, let your hearts not uh, not be troubled. Trust in me, trust in God. 
He goes on and he, and he says, uh, I go to prepare a place for you. So he's preparing them for what's going to come. So in chapter 15, in that same spirit, in that same environment, is a very somber time. It's, it's a bit sad because the disciples, even though they're hearing these things, they still don't quite understand it. So they're trying to figure it all out. But he gives them then what we have in front of us, this, what I would call, explanation of what it means to really abide to to belong, to be committed to the Lord. Now, there's three basic things here that I would like you to note with me, if you will, as you consider what it means to have this kind of relationship with the living God. The first is simply this, is what I will call the consequences of what it means to have a relationship with God. That is, that that I think in some cases we may look at the relationship that one has with the living God as being somewhat of a formality. You either belong to a church or you don't. You identify yourself as a Christian or you, or you don't. But the idea that you are an, an organic part of the Trinity is somewhat foreign. Jesus here is helping us understand what that means. And so he uses this image of of a vine and of branches. And it's an, it's an interesting image to think about because as we, as we consider what that means, we realize that we are truly, that is, if we understand the picture that Jesus has in front of us, we are truly in union with the living God. We belong to Him. We're, we're in a, again, in a very organic way. And if you actually are part of a branch or part of a tree or whatever, then you're going to expect that there's going to be branches with leaves and there's going to be seasons and it's going to change somewhat. But nevertheless, as long as you are connected, you're always part of that tree, or in this case, of the vine and and the branches. Uh, We know that as Jesus is speaking to these disciples, that they are going to be tested. Some of them are already in the process of being tested. Think about what this would have meant to someone like Judas, who was, who was planning, premeditating what it was going to look like to deny Christ and to betray him. Someone like Peter, who thought he was really committed to Christ, but in time, he would prove the integrity of his commitment when he would die, deny the Lord in the most needed time. And so we see all these kinds of variations, but Jesus is clear. If you're a part of me, if you're abiding in me, then there will be significant consequences, and he refers to them as fruit. Now, there's different ways in which we can look at that fruit. In some cases, it might be uh, the fruit of the Spirit, love. In fact, uh, you'll see that, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, Fidelity, tolerance, and self-control. Those are things that you would expect from someone who is trusting and relying upon the Lord. Uh, That is, that it makes a difference within our lives. And you may not always be able to see the difference that is there. But others certainly ought to be. About a year ago, I was with a friend by the name of Moore Wang. We were... uh, in a, a section of Beijing, and we were meeting with a couple of, of friends and, and their friends for a dinner. And uh, the one gal was a, a, fel- a gal by the name of Jody, who was probably in her late 30s, maybe early 40s, married, has a son, 
successful businesswoman, uh, had, had her own and has her own consulting business in terms of HR, and she travels throughout China uh, doing that work. And then next to her was a guy by the name of Cindy. Cindy, uh, Jody didn't speak uh, English. Uh, Cindy did. She did much of the translation. There, there was about three or four other gals who were, who were there as well, uh, friends uh, around the table along with Maura and myself. And so as we were introduced and I began to get a sense of their history, I asked them the simple question, tell me a little bit about your story. Because in China, as you well know, uh, you know, to be a Christian isn't the most popular thing. Some give the estimate that there, there might be in a country of like 1.3 billion people, maybe 100 million plus or so Christians, which is a lot. And so I was interested in knowing, well, how is it that you guys have come to Christ? Tell me a little bit about your story. And so they began. And so Jody was one of the ones who shared. And she said, you know, for most of my life, I knew nothing about the gospel. And I had no interest in Christianity. And really, in a sense, no, no need to have an interest. And then she said that she had a friend who had gone away, uh, went abroad. I think this friend had come to the States and lived here for a while, studied, maybe worked. And then returned back to China. Upon that friend's return, uh, met up again with Jody, and they, be, they developed their friendship again. And Jody said, I could see in this person's life a difference that I had never, ever seen before. Now again, if you think about it, Jody isn't expecting anything, right? She's not saying, oh, well, you're one of those Christians, and then all of a sudden kind of boxing uh, this person in. No, she, she expected nothing, but the... The way in which this person, this friend, was living at their life, was thinking, was responding to circumstances, Jody said, it just, it just took me by surprise. And then I began to ask the question, what is it in your life that is making this kind of difference? I've never known you. I've never seen you like this. And what Jody was experiencing was, what she was seeing was someone who was abiding, who belonged to Christ and in an organic, in a natural way in her thinking, in her words, in her actions was demonstrating what it looks like to belong to the Lord. It's, it, it's impossible to have that kind of relationship with Christ and for it to mean absolutely nothing. There will be a positive, if I may put it this way, Consequences, if in fact we know Christ. Now, third, or secondly, I won't go to the third point until we get to the second. <laughs> Not only do we have the consequences, but we have what I would call the conversation. Uh, it's interesting to me to note that that Jesus is always, throughout his ministry, referring to the scriptures. And one of the reasons why we hold to the Old and New Testament the way that we do is because of Jesus' view of it. Uh, sometimes in an examination, I'll ask the question, uh, you know, tell me about your view of Scripture. And ultimately what I'm looking for, this is a theological examination, ultimately what, what I'm looking for is someone to say, I have the same view as Christ. Because if you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uh, often refers to the Old Testament. And in doing so, he says, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So it doesn't surprise us to find all throughout Jesus' ministry, constant references within his teaching in regards to the Old Testament. And 
in, in the latter part of chapter 15 of John, as well as in 16, he points to the future. We'll talk about that at another time. But the point is that, that to have a conversation with God means that we will be a good listener. Now, you've all been on planes or you've been in other places where, hey, how are you doing? You know, my name's, you know, Chuck Garriott. You know, tell me a little bit about yourself. And that's it. I mean, like, the conversation is only one way. And, uh, and if you don't have another 30 minutes to listen to the response, you know, you're, you're done. But you would expect that a conversation goes both ways. But it certainly must be something in which we hear, we listen. And I think Jesus is referring to, especially if you come to verse 17, where he says, if you abide in me, if you belong to me, if you're committed to me, and my words, he says, abide in you, then he speaks about the second half of that conversation, that dialogue, where, where we are speaking to God. But before we speak to God, he wants us to be reminded of how God speaks to us. We sometimes talk about um, the Word of God or God speaking in two ways. On the one side, it's the Psalm 19. You know what the Psalm 19 uh, version is? That's, that side is what we call a general revelation where the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech, and night after night, they display knowledge. In other words, God speaks to us through His creation. Sometimes, especially uh, since the Reformation, I think we downplay the significance of general revelation in that we say, well, you know, what we can only know so much about God through it. But I'll tell you this. Anyone who believes that God does exist will also understand that one of the significant proofs of his existence is the fact that we live in this world and universe that has an enormous amount of of regular patterns, of order, of union, so to speak. So that you all got here in time for worship because God created a universe that is that predictable. So you have a sense of when you need to get up and when you need to go to sleep and how, uh, how you need to go about your year. Because God's given you that kind of year. And so we call that general revelation. But we need, to, we need to listen to God through general revelation. But more specifically, we need to listen to God through His words. Uh, special revelation, as we call it. And in doing so, Jesus is saying, when God speaks, it's, it's incredibly important that we are listening to Him. And how does He speak? He speaks through His word. Old and New Testament, the 66 books of the entire Bible. And what I find here is that if I'm not listening to God, and I will tell you, having been a believer for, let's say, forty, almost 45 years or so, that I still find God's Word to be a challenge to me. I think one of the gifts that God gave me was the, the call to ministry, which meant then that I would eventually go to seminary and spend three years studying theology and the scriptures, etc. I went initially to seminary because I believed that I was very deficient in my understanding of the scriptures, and I thought seminary would be a good place to go. In fact, uh, when, I, when I went to seminary, I thought it would be like a three-year Bible conference. And I didn't think about the academic side to it. When I got there, I was quite surprised to learn that it was very academic. But 
It challenged me in ways that I had never been challenged before. It, it, it taught me about different intricacies of God's Word that I would have never learned. And then to be in the ministry where I was teaching and preaching on a regular basis, that gave me this incredible privilege to be in the Word of God in a way that I would have never, ever been if I had done something else. I, I have been convinced that the reason, one of the reasons why God has placed me in the ministry is so that I, I would be in the Word that much because I need to be in the Word that much. I need to be hearing from God. And if I don't have the, the structure of ministry and the excuses to be in Scripture, I wouldn't be in it. So I see it, for me personally, as an incredible gift. But I also find that to be in the Word is challenging. Because it challenges my thinking about myself, about my, my deficiencies. It challenges me in regards to my relationship with my wife, Debbie, and my children, and grandchildren, and friends. And I'm always being challenged in terms of what God is saying, what he's not saying. What I find interesting is that when studies have been made in regards to what the nature of the church is today here within the United States, I find it a little bit concerning. Here's, here's what I mean. We live in a world of what? Seven billion people. That's pretty big. Uh, the United States is only about 5% of the world's population. In other words, we're like 315-ish million people, right? So we're a small percentage of the world's population. But what's interesting to note is that within a country of 315 million people, we, in essence, make up the largest uh, country, so to speak, in regards to Christians. That is, uh, the statistics or the, the studies show that within the United States, there's some like 225 million people that one way or the other, and it's a broad spectrum, are saying, we belong to Christianity. We belong to those who are claiming God. Now, that's a, that's a high percentage. But what's interesting to note is that of all, let's say, 200 countries in the world, we're the largest. And then the next question that uh, the researchers will ask is, okay, what's the nature of those who are claiming to be Christians? In other words, what's the nature of their thinking? And people like Barna, for example, when they've done these different studies, they noted a number of things. With this high percentage of people who are saying they believe in God and they are connecting themselves with Christianity, that their actual understanding of the scripture is relatively low. You might say, well, what do you mean low? Well, the question was asked in specific ways, do you have a biblical world and life view? In other words, have you taken the Bible, have you understood it well enough so that it's filtered in in terms of your thinking? So when you think about your work and your your relationship with your your brothers and sisters and your parents and and uh, your neighbors and your your community at large, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Do you have a biblical world and life view, or do you have a secular world and life view? And the the studies that they have demonstrated, which aren't that old, have shown that out of all those people, and especially those who consider themselves to be more conservative on the side, that only about have a biblical world and life view. Now, that's a rather depressing number to hear, that people are saying, no, I'm committed, I'm part of the vine in the branch, so to speak. I belong to God. I'm committed to Him. And yet their thinking 
is way over here in regards to the scriptures. The other question that was asked is, okay, well, if the people in the church, so to speak, or those who are claiming to be believers, uh, only a small percentage of them have a biblical world life view, what about those who are teaching them? And so they did this study, and they discovered that maybe only 50% of pastors have a biblical world life view, and those who had seminary training were less likely to have a biblical world life view as opposed to those who didn't have a seminary training. So here we are, sitting within this time of history, a country that has supposedly this percentage of Christians, and yet, in terms of our thinking, it's not there. You have to conclude by saying, there's something wrong, maybe, in regards to this conversation. Are we really... Are we really listening in a way that we need to? On the other side of the, of the equation, Jesus doesn't just, just simply talk about abiding in his word, but he says, but whoever does abide, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, I, I'm not going to go into statistics in regards to the prayer life, but I'll just tell you personally, I find prayer to be an enormous challenge. Prayer is one of those, those things that is both Deceptive and dangerous. It's dangerous because anybody who has read even part of the scriptures know that when someone goes into the presence of God, their lives will be changed. And in fact, we're told that like, like Moses when he was in the, the wilderness and, and uh, he had broken the first tablets, God speaking to his people, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Moses got mad and he broke the tablets and then he was gonna ha- he was, they were going to be replaced. And so God says to him, I'm going to appear to you, but you need to hide behind the rock because if you see me, you'll die. To be in God's presence is a dangerous thing. It's deceptive because it's so easy, right? Can anyone here say, no, I really can't pray? Now, I've had friends, I've had friends who or have been professing believers who have gone to seminary, who have become pastors of churches, who have told me that they cannot pray at all. They are not able to pray. Now, I would say that's an exception. So maybe you can't stand up here and pray publicly, but I suspect most of you can pray privately. You can pray within your own heart. You can say, God, help me. Right? It's so easy. So that a child, uh, an Elena, a, you know, a two-year-old can bow her head or his head and fold her hands or his hands and thank Jesus for the food. It's that easy. So it's deceptive because something that's so easy, you would think we could do it all the time. And yet, if you're anything like me, you struggle with that side of the conversation. I can tell you, in marriage, there's any number of times where I've made it difficult in terms of the conversation that Debbie and I have had. And she can give you all those stories. I won't, uh, I won't go into that. Okay, thirdly. So you've got consequences in terms of those who abide. And secondly, you have the issue of the conversation. But thirdly, you have the, the dynamic of community. And it's well defined here. Uh, Jesus says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Verse 10, 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another. Again, a, a commandment, part of the conversation that seems pretty straightforward. It should be easy for us to do. Uh, it's, gonna, it's going to show its integrity, especially within, I think, our family life, uh, whether it be between um, uh, us and our spouse, our parents, our brothers and sisters, or whatever. That's where I think it's, it's often demonstrated, maybe those with whom we are living and then those who are our friends. But to really love with the agape love that Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians 13 is a really significant challenge. But there is no community without what, what Jesus is speaking about here. Uh, there's a book out. I didn't bring it with me. It's, by, it's been out for a number of years by Dan Kimball. It's called, They Like Jesus, But Not the Church. You may or may not be familiar with it. Uh, he's a pastor in California, or at least he, he was the last time I looked. And he's a guy that speaks a lot and gets around. And he's just simply saying, uh, there's a lot of people out there that really have trouble with the church. Uh, and so he, he shares within this book about going to uh, a gym uh, and he's being shown around. I guess he was considering whether or not he would be um, a member of it. And so uh, the gal that had showed him around concludes, and he goes on, he, he describes the, uh, the particulars of it. I'll read it to you. At the end of the loop of machines she was showing me, she wrapped up her instruction and asked me what I do for a living. Since I don't try to hide it, I said I'm a pastor of a church. Her expression changed as she took two steps backward tripped on the leg of the machine next to her. No blankety-blankety-blankety way, you're a pastor. I don't believe you. It took several minutes to convince her. I really am a pastor, she said. There was no way that a pastor would ever, and they talked about certain um, bands and musical groups, no way that, that a pastor would ever have liked the Smiths. Do you know who the Smiths are? Duke knows. Okay, uh, that's the main thing. What about the cure? Okay, all right. Okay, so this could be Duke. And she was shocked because I seemed normal and not at all what she thought a Christian and especially a pastor would be like. Her strong reaction made me wonder why she would think that. And I asked her, and she said that, that pastors are creepy. She went on to say that pastors are out trying to proselyze people and, and, be, and, 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 and make them... Dip, to become right-wing Republicans and that they hate homosexuals and that a pastor definitely wouldn't know who the Smiths or the Cures are. When I asked her if she knew any other pastor, she said no. Instead, her impressions had come from stories she had read, TV, etc. He goes on, he said, uh, there are six common perceptions of the church. Number one, the church is an organized religion with a political agenda. Two, the church is judgmental and negative. Three, the church is dominated by males and oppresses females. Fourth, the church is homophobic. Fifth, the church arrogantly claims all other religions are wrong. And sixth, the church is full of fundamentalists who take the whole Bible literally. I think a lot of people believe that. In fact, if you don't mind, and, I, and forgive me if I'm giving you way too much statistics, but I'll, I'll, I only got a couple more minutes of this. Barna has said, that if you look at that, again, that 225 million people within the United States, 
uh, out of a country of 315 million, there is within the United States about 100 million people who would say just what this friend has said in regards to their view of the church. That is, they like Jesus, but they don't like the church. In other words, about 100 million, Barna said, would fall under that category. That's a large number, which means that it doesn't matter what kind of church you are, it doesn't matter what kind of music or worship or what kind of organization you are, these people are saying, I don't want anything to do with the organized church. And so they they get their Christianity uh, through like the internet, or maybe they'll attend a some kind of gathering, a Bible study, whether it be in a home or whether it be in the marketplace. But they don't want anything to do with the church. Is Jesus' word here in regards to this dynamic of love falling in a way on deaf ears in terms of the people of God today within a country that claims to be more Christian regardless of what you believe about other things, at least in terms of what people, individuals are saying. And I think to a great extent, there's, there's, a, big, there's a big issue here. I, I believe that when we look at this, this uh, passage in front of us in regards to love, that Jesus does two things. He gives us both, the, the, uh, here in the message, the power of the love and the pattern of the love, right? The power comes from Christ himself. He speaks about his love for us, his people. The gospel. I don't. I don't have a desire to love because it comes in with. It comes from within me. It's got to come from my Savior. That's part. Of, that's part of what the gospel does. It shows me my sin. It shows me my deficiency. It shows me my weaknesses in regards to relationships, both with Him, with my Lord, as well as with with His people, or with with my wife or my children. I need the power of the gospel to show me that. It's good for me to feel guilty. It's good for me to to go on a guilt trip and to say, you know what, I haven't loved Debbie well. I I, I haven't really served her the way that I've been called, the way that I thought that that I could when I first said, will you marry me? Or when I stood before her and our friends and those in the church and, agree, and, and committed myself to her in sickness and in health, etc., etc. I, I struggle with that. I need Christ to show me that. And I need Christ to show me the pattern. And he gives me that here. He talks about here the, the fact that he's laying down his life. God in the flesh, who would come as a baby, and live a life as a common person who is, in fact, God in the flesh and would go to the cross and listen to people, I don't know, thousands of people yell, crucify him, his own. He says, I've come and my own have rejected me. So I had both the power and the pattern. Uh, yesterday I was in Dallas with a bunch of pastors and this one had uh, shared about uh, this couple in his church who, who were having some real marital difficulties. And he said that uh, the husband had been planning for 10 years to divorce his wife in his heart. That was his commitment. For two years, 
he had been involved in an ongoing affair. I mean, he was set to do this. The only reason he was giving himself 10 years is because of his kids. I'll wait until my children are done and then I'll, uh, I'll divorce my wife. His wife then, in the meantime, comes to Christ. She hears the gospel. She hears the difference that Jesus makes. And so she surrenders her life to Christ. And she, I'm sure she had to know, if she didn't know the particulars, she knew that her husband was not in love with her. And she probably knew that he was having an affair. And how much they talked, I don't know the details. But what I do know is that this pastor friend shared yesterday that, that the husband began to fall in love with his wife. And the reason why he began to fall in love with his wife again was because she had changed. She began to love him even though he was not loving her. And she began to do things for him that she had never done before. And that transformation began to transform his life. It was one of these incredible stories. I'll just give you one other quick little uh, deal that may or may not be of help, but I don't know if any of you have read the book, A Severe Mercy. It's by a fellow by the name of Sheldon Van Nucken. I read it, I don't know, 30 or 35 years ago, something like that. It's, it's about uh, Sheldon and his relationship with his wife, Davy, And uh, it's a great story of, of how they come to know the Lord and then... Uh, she eventually dies. So it, it's, uh, it's a bit um, sad. So maybe you won't want to read it if you're looking for something that's going to... Well, in fact, no, I would say if you're looking for something that's going to encourage you, this, this is a great book. Uh, they, they fall in love. They, they get married secretly. Um, they spend time sailing around the world in their sailboat. They eventually go to Oxford. And while they're in Oxford, and I think this is probably in the 50s, they began to uh, think about Christianity. And they have these Christian friends. They, uh, he eventually begins to correspond with C.S. Lewis. And, uh, but here, this is what his observation is as a non-Christian. He says, the best argument for Christianity is Christians, their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they are somber and joyless, when they are self-righteous and smug and complacent in consecration, when they are narrow and repressive, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. It comes both ways. Argument for, argument against. All right. So here's my question. Are you abiding? Do you belong to the Lord? Do you belong to the Lord, sort of in name, kind of formally? Is it kind of a casual relationship? Is it one of those things that if, you're, if it's convenient, then you'll engage in it. If it's not convenient, if it's not costly, you won't. Or do you conform to a John 15 version where you see the consequences of the gospel? Not of your works, not of your efforts, but of what Christ is doing in your life. Are you involved in that conversation, as challenging as it may be, both in terms of receiving that word and spending time in prayer? And then thirdly, thirdly, are you part of that community where it will really test your love for the Lord? 
Because I can tell you right now, if you truly love Jesus, you will love his people. That's what he's challenging his disciples to. And I can tell you that it will not be easy. One other pastor mentioned to me yesterday in Dallas, he said, you know, he says, I just don't like my church. I love my community, but I just don't like... Now, he, had, he, he did not know that I was recently reading uh, that book, you know. Uh, but he said, I, I, he said, it's really challenged me. But he also went on and he said, but I'm learning to love them. And I want to love them. And God is doing some... He said, God is doing incredible things in my life as I go on this journey of trying to love the church. And I think that's one of the benefits of being involved in the church, the people of God, is that they will challenge you in terms of your relationship with Christ. Pray with me. Father, thank you for giving us this time together. Thank you for Meridian Hill, for Grace Meridian Hill, for the work that you're doing here, how you how you continue to show yourself through these people. Uh, Father, I pray that you would greatly bless Duke, Paula, the others who are involved in leadership, the others who are involved in serving, and those who are just seeking and trying to figure out what you're doing. Thank you for all these things in Christ's name.